It's election time. This week, it's our last episode before people get out and vote. There's one last dose of news with bridges and LRT, and we'll give you your final injection of election roundup. Plus, predictions, so we can lose all credibility for next week. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 151, where in 151 episodes, we did not use time as a pun for the word time. (laughs) Usually we're like, that's too obvious. We must have used that before. But once again, we're in luck. We haven't used it. It's the perfect title. Let's move on to the rapid fire segment. Edmonton has ranked in the world's 100 best cities to live, according to Residence Consultancy. The list, which placed Edmonton below Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Calgary, and Ottawa, has finally given Edmonton the conclusive proof it needed to boast that it's better than Winnipeg, I guess? Are there any other Canadian cities? Don't at me, Victoria. You're basically Seattle. New safety measures are being added after multiple windows fell from Edmonton's Stantec Tower. The condo strata developer is taking a page out of Edmonton City Council's book, however, and instead of opting for the premium safety package, They're instead opting for one that saves some money. While residents will no longer be able to look out their windows, they will have fashionable large black steel girders that extend half a foot into their units. There was allegedly a very bright aurora borealis in Edmonton Monday night, but after a thorough search of Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, we were unable to find a single photo of the event. If an aurora borealis is and no one was around to gram it, did it ever really happen? Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this week, we are happy to tell you about fellow APN member Quantum Kickflip. The podcast is six Edmonton comedians who play Slug Blaster, a sci-fi tabletop role-playing game developed right here in Alberta. And we have a clip for you. In the small prairie town of Hillview. In the center of town, Hillview's single traffic light shifts from red to green which has no effect whatsoever as Main Street is, as usual, completely devoid of traffic. Bored teenagers use their modified hoverboards to sneak into other dimensions. An abandoned cityscape lives half buried in the sand. Welcome to the multiverse. It's dangerous. The entire right side of her body looks like uh, just a glitched out mess. It's stupid. And then I immediately uh, turn around and punch him. It's got parent groups in a panic. Just don't do it, okay? Hugs, not slugs. All right. Thank you. (laughs) And it's the coolest thing ever. This is Slug Blaster. Well, your funeral and ours, I guess. And then Angus points and fires. There's an explosion. A burst of slime goes flying. Your reign of terror has come to an end. It it kind of scrambles and glitches out. And you can see that this this is like a smoking crater where your ray gun hit. (laughs) Sick. (laughs) Quantum Kickflip. A Slug Blaster actual play podcast, part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Check out Quantum Kickflip wherever podcasts are sold or at quantumkickflipalwinword.com. Okay, so Troy, usually this is the point of the show where you start things off, but I'm going to take the honors today because I feel like you've been in the news a lot lately, at least online, the online world, the Twitter news world. And and uh, I don't want us to always be the subject of this show, but I'm feeling a couple of things. I'm feeling a little bit of whiplash. You've gone from being the hero of the internet, Troy, to a villain, or maybe back and forth between those two. And I'm also just really looking forward to post-election when the shenanigans can end and we can get back to usual boring procedural stuff at City Council. Last episode, we talked about your musical that you had posted because you're a fan of Amarjeet Sohi. 
it was received <laughs> widely. <laughs> some people were positive. Some people were negative. Some people were just downright mean. You shared some of the things you received. I, I, I mean, even if you didn't like it, you have to at least recognize the amount of work that went into it. So that was kind of either or. Then you were the hero of the internet because you released a billboard, which we're going to talk about, like a real billboard. And then you tweeted some other stuff and people got angry, angry at you about it. So what's going on, Troy? Is this just election shenanigans? Like I said, are we going to get back to normal ever? You know, I'm hopeful, Mac. Um, this election has been... Um eye-opening for me in that uh, my Twitter audience is very fickle. I'd like to say that it will all end after the election. I look at some of the hate that I receive on Twitter, and a lot of it does seem very performative for a campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do worry, and I've seen this all across the city, where municipal campaigns have taken a bit of an indication from provincial politics. Like, endorsements aren't the only thing that have bled down from provincial politics. A lot of, like, partisan team making has also yep. bled down right and in the same way that it's cool on twitter to score points by quote tweeting matt wolf and you know saying look at how not matt wolf i am right and upping your progressive cred that way you know i've seen a lot of that on twitter where people who were very recently friends and got along very well in the Twitter sphere are suddenly at each other's throats. And you'd be surprised at how completely unacceptable these people's views have become in the progressive eye. I speak from a personal experience as I am on the outs and outs with progressive Twitter. Well, today, I'm sure tomorrow you'll be back in their good graces. I do want to say that I appreciate that you've got at least a bit of self-awareness about this. You know that you're being a troll at times and that you <laughs> like to stir the pot. Sometimes when you do that, people love you for it. And that happened this week with the Mike Nickel billboard. Let's talk about that for a second. So you had a real billboard, a digital billboard that talked about Mike Nickel voting in favor of bike lanes for downtown. And it had his photo, him dressed in biking gear. I don't know where you got that photo. And then in the corner, it said, paid for by Troy Pavlik. <laughs> the best part, in brackets, LOL, sue me. <laughs> so this idea was something that has been percolating in my brain for about 14 months now. I remember I had pitched the idea as just like, this was before Mike Nickel had announced. Mm -hmm. I remember. But yep. it was clear he was running for mayor. You know, he was already doing stuff. And I had pitched this idea to one of my group chats and I said, wouldn't it be hilarious if I bought a billboard that was just white background, black text, Mike Nickel voted for bike lanes. <laughs> right. That was the idea. And it's festered and evolved since then. Obviously, when uh, Mike Nickel took out the billboard on the crystal glass billboard attacking Andrew Knack and Aaron Paquette for voting in favor of the mask bylaw, that was when yep. its final iteration truly came to form. But yeah, I've been sitting on this idea for better part of a year, just waiting waiting to pull the trigger and i figured one week before election day this is the time i'm pressing send and i put the billboard up and i gotta say it exceeded my expectations it did very well it blew up on reddit which has lots of great comments from you answering the questions that i'm sure people have like how long is the billboard up for i think you said every six seconds out of every minute so it is live for six seconds every minute so there's 10 total yep. ads each ad displays for six seconds so right once per minute people will see my billboard for the next week and it only costs you 150 dollars 
Correct. Which is a bit of a steal, I feel like. Granted, it's only one billboard, but... True. You know, it's very affordable. I want to say briefly on that point, though. Crystal Glass donated $6,000, the legal limit is 5000 to Mike Nichols' campaign in 2017. And round-the-clock yeah. advertising, the wholly owned subsidiary of Crystal Glass, operated out of the Crystal Glass offices that controls the billboard, they also donated $2,500 to Mike Nichols. So to call these people Mike Nichols supporters is absolutely fair game. Mm -hmm. So when I was pitching this idea, I expected the story to be that Crystal Glass prevented me from putting this billboard up. And right. when I called to get to this copy put up on the billboard, I was recording the phone calls because I was expecting to produce, you know, an episode <laughs> of the podcast. I was expecting this to be the story, not to sure. actually get the billboard up. To their credit, they were absolute champs about this. They got it up ASAP. As soon as they put it up, they said, hey, you know, we can't really read the lol Sumi part. Do you want to send us revised copy so that it's more legible? Yeah. And I did. And they got it up within half an hour. So political interferers, they are not. And that's to their credit. The billboard is up and it for the absolute steal of $150. So that's good. They didn't prevent you. That doesn't change the fact that they have donated $8,500 by your calculations to Mike Nichols campaign. Sure. Um, and, you know, <laughs> that's that's that. But, you know, they're yeah. not being well, I was going to say they're not being illegal about it, but they kind of are just, just a little bit. <laughs> Okay, well, we're going to come back to d disclosures right away. Last thing that I think people are probably wondering about if they've heard about this uh, billboard debacle or two things, I guess. One very quick one, which is, did you register as an, as, as an advertiser, an official third-party advertiser? So I actually tried in July. I reached out to the city of Edmonton to talk about the process. Yep. And unfortunately, registering as a third-party advertiser requires you to open a bank account specific to this, even if you don't raise the $1,000 that is required to register. So if you raise less than $1,000, you don't have to register. If you raise more than $1,000, you do have to register. But if you register, no matter how much money you make, you have to open a new bank account specifically for the third-party advertiser business. And because it's not a personal use, you can't use like Tangerine or Simply or any of the free online bank accounts. Mm. Basically, the proposition was, I don't have to register, but they want me to pay to maintain a bank account for several months. And I'm just like, well, no, I don't have yeah. to register. I'm not going to do that. It's interesting that the uh, transparency law actually prohibited transparency and made transparency more difficult in my specific case. So no, and I did not register as a third-party advertiser. And you didn't have to. It's not about raising. It's about how much you spend, isn't it? And just because you spent less than 1000 means you didn't even need to look into that, even though it sounds like you did, obviously take an effort to try to make that public it's spending or raising as soon as you expect to either spend or raise one thousand dollars you have to register i spent 150 dollars and declined everyone's donations so all in yep. the clear there okay last thing on the billboard i thought this was really interesting you know the initial reaction was oh that's amazing you're my hero i love that whatever there was a constant thread of people though who were like wait i don't understand doesn't this mean you're against bike lanes and you had kind of a standard response to people when they asked a question like this. So do you want to explain that a little bit? If you accept the premise that bike lanes are bad, this billboard should convince you not to vote for Mike Nickel. If you accept the premise that bike lanes are good, you were never in contention of voting Mike Nickel anyway. And if you accept the premise that Mike Nickel sucks, this billboard will piss him off. So it's wins all around. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well done on the billboard. 
The next thing I want to touch on before we get into real news here is disclosures. We have now on the Taproot Edmonton election site a list of everyone's disclosure links, links to their disclosure documents. We've got 33 at the moment, and we'll keep updating that as more come in. Uh, Mike Nickel has released his donations list, over $400,000 he's raised, and lots of people have been looking at, at that and parsing the news. And one thing that seemed to get at least progressive Twitter in an uproar is that Greg Zeschuk, who is one of the co-founders of BioWare and also uh, Blind Enthusiasm, which owns Biera uh, in your neck of the woods over there, Troy, donated $5,000, I think the limit, to Mike Nickel. And this prompted calls to boycott Biera, which is ridiculous. And then you pointed out that he's also donated to some other people who are, you know, more progressive candidates like Kirsten Goa or maybe progressive Rianne and Hoyle. And people didn't seem to like that. I'm not sure that I agree with your characterization of the boycotts as ridiculous. And you and I have very different opinions on boycotts. I know you think like, you know, who's still boycotting the Italian market after Teresa Spinelli advocated for lowering the minimum wage. Sure. You know, point taken there. They, they posted on Twitter, they get a little bit of reaction, and then everybody goes back to real life and they forget about it, right? Fair. And point absolutely taken. I think my main question is, I've known about Greg Zestruck for a while because in 2017, he also donated to Mike Nickel. And I knew about that back then. But he also donated $500 to Karen Tang and $1,000 to Don Iveson. Uh, in this election, sure, he's donated 5000 to Nickel, but he's donated between three and 5000 to Kirsten Goa and some to Rhiannon Hoyle, who he officially endorsed. Um, but Rhiannon hasn't released released the donor amounts. Mm -hmm. So I think it's probably unfair to characterize Greg Zestruck as evil and against the best interests of Edmonton. As far as I can tell, dude just likes Mike Nickel on a personal level. And honestly, I can't necessarily fault him. Uh, if you look at Greg Zestruck, he exists as the proprietor of Richie Market and Bira and Blind Enthusiasm, which not to give it too much credit, I think is basically single-handedly responsible for some of the revitalization we're seeing in Richie and Hazeldean. We wouldn't have Pharaoh on 76 Ave without that kind, I doubt, would have moved in without the corner store redevelopment. And I took out a billboard mocking Mike Nickel. Don't think I'm a Mike Nickel apologist, but Mike Nickel was very good on the corner store file and on getting that redevelopment done. And he mm -hmm. was helpful throughout the process. He worked very, very well with the business owners. So if I'm Greg Zestruck and I see this guy deliver this thing that has helped the community and helped my business personally, I might be inclined to think this guy could get things done. You know, I not everyone is as tapped into politics as you and I. Some people just see Mike Nickel fill a pothole. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm quite willing to condemn his business to death for that. I mean, I think that's a huge problem if people are looking at Mike Nickel and only seeing the positive and are willfully ignorant about all of the well-documented bad things that would come with uh, Mike Nickel being our mayor. So, I mean, that aside, I, my favorite response to all the tweets was that maybe Greg Zeschuk is just an agent of chaos. Maybe he <laughs> just wants to give some money to the right and to the left, which, I, you know, that's kind of interesting to me. Maybe he's just like, he's a rich guy, right? He $5,000 to him is like nothing. So why not dole a little bit out here, a little bit out there? Maybe it's just people he knows. Who knows? Look at the developers find their names and then look in both Sohees and Mike Nichols yeah. campaign disclosures. You'll find them. They're they're both there. 
But the reason that people are upset about this is because you again called out Kirsten Go on Twitter, or at least used her name in a tweet, which I guess is enough, because you are an unabashed Michael Jans fan who has running up against Kirsten Goa in that ward. And I don't want to get into this too much because I feel like it is actually pretty much confined to a small pocket of feminist Twitter and the rest of the city won't actually know or care about any of this. But do you think there's anything to that? Are you being a little bit willfully, what's the word? You know this is going to do something negative for Kirsten Goa. That's why you're posting this tweet because you're a Jan supporter. Is there anything to that? No. And you know, I granted you the leeway for a bit of a rant last week. I want to drop a bit of a rant this week. (sighs) I am frustrated that everyone on Twitter seems to think that I am stupid. And I say this because if you look at my Twitter circle, the amount of followers I have that are active boosters of Kirsten Goa's campaign, off the charts. It's, It's probably the majority of my Twitter circle. I recognize that. Would I really be so stupid as to think that these progressive Kirsten Goa supporters who have given their time, money, and effort to elect this person, who have probably already voted in the advanced polls, could be convinced to vote for their mortal enemy because I tweeted one thing? I I just don't see that as a possibility. So if we're accepting that I'm smart enough to realize, why would I ever do that? I committed at the start of this election campaign that I would continue to tweet exactly how I would tweet, regardless Mm -hmm. of the bullying that I receive. And that is what I continue to do. And if you read the text of my tweets, you will find that in many cases, the ones that have been accused of being misogynist against Kirsten Goa could definitely be read as endorsements of Kirsten Goa, or at the very least, this one, a defense of Greg Zastruck. Right. Give me a little bit more credit, okay? I put up a couple of billboards. I made a couple of musicals. Just give me a little bit more credit. <laughs> you be you, Troy. I love that what you see is what you get, and you've stuck to that. Okay, last thing on this. Speaking of Actually, before beats. before they shit on me for not disclosing, yes, I'm voting for Michael Jans. Okay. It's, probably you know, That's have. on the record, yeah. okay? Cool. Yeah. Okay, last thing. Reading these tweets, I think my favorite one has to be from <laughs> Papasteo candidate Byron Vass, who tweeted a couple of weeks ago, tagged all of his fellow uh, competitors in that ward and said, hey, when this is all done, we should get together for a beer. And my only requirement is that we do that at Biera. <laughs> and then today he quote tweeted himself and said, well, that tweet did not age well. <laughs> Well done, Byron. Well done. I love Byron because he reminds me a lot of me. Uh, He's running (laughs) in my ward. He has absolutely no chance of winning. He doesn't take himself super seriously. And he's got reasonably good ideas. Like, here's the thing. In a vacuum, if there were no other candidates, I could absolutely be convinced to go vote for the guy. Yeah. I also love him. And he also reminds me of me because... I've had the conversation with him of, dude, don't run for public office. And do you know what he did? Just like I did in 2017, he ignored me and ran for public (laughs) office anyway. (laughs) I love you, Byron. When you lose the election, sorry, you're going to lose the election. I'll have beers with you at Not Beera. Sounds good. Good luck, Byron. Okay, let's get on to some actual news now, Troy. Cool. I think the big piece of actual news this week is... (laughs) Valley line. Now, news, I think, is a stretch because we all knew this was happening, but announcement occurred that the Valley line will not be complete this year. Uh, 
Transed is now targeting first quarter of 2022 for the completion of the Valley Line, which was already a year delayed. This is more specifically the Valley Line Southeast, so not the Valley Line West, which has been in the news recently, but the one going out to Millwoods. I think it's really hilarious that the news came out and people were like, yeah, of course. I don't think anybody actually believed it was going to open by the end of this calendar year. My money's on April, still on April. I don't think they're going to hit Q1. We'll see. But the, the news quickly became not about the delay because everybody knew that. It became, why did they make an announcement about LRT four or five days before election day? Isn't there supposed to be a quiet period or a caretaker period or something like that where we're not making an announcement, especially about something like LRT, which has been a pretty polarizing hot button issue as of late with mayoral candidates. It's a, it seems very strange that they decided that they would make this announcement. And so I want to ask you your opinion about this, Troy, because I wonder why. Was it intentional? Because that seems really weird. If it's intentional, why would they do that? They seem like an organization that depends on having LRT contracts. And so if they make this announcement and it's delayed, it makes transit look bad, it gives fuel to the Cheryl Watsons and Mike Nichols of the world who want to stop LRT, that would seem to be bad for business for them. And if it's unintentional, then my question is, like, are they really that daft? Like, come on. If those were my only two pieces of information, if what you said is the only information I had, then I would say, you know, probably what was happening here was a very earnest effort by TransEd being caught between a rock and a hard place. If, for example, they got the consultant report today that said this is going to be delayed and they waited five days before announcing it, could that not also be spun as political interference? Fair enough. They got the result and they hit it. Rock in a hard place. I could understand that. However, I'm leaning more towards daft because apparently... They didn't tell the city either. Yes, uh, Brianna Carsten-Smith, another journalist with Global News, tweeted about this, and then Global uh, included this in their story about the delay. They have a statement from Adam Lachlan, who we've had on the show before, the Deputy City Manager of Integrated Infrastructure Services. And he said that they haven't received an updated schedule from TransEd and that the service commencement date they have received is still December 27th, 2021. So either they chose not to tell the city of Edmonton and just decided to release it publicly or it got lost in the mail, maybe? 100% TransEd, just let me do your comm strategy for you. The correct thing to do in this situation is to say, hey, there's an election going on. We're going to send all of our information to the city. The city can decide whether to release or not release this information. That's what you should have done. Depoliticize it. It's not you deciding to either withhold or release information. It's all up to the city. They did not do that. So I'm thinking with this preponderance of evidence, I'm leaning towards daft. I think TransEd (laughs) is just doing what TransEd does. There was another sort of like egg on face moment, this time for the city. And that's the Ada Boulevard Bridge, which opened this week. Usually when a bridge opens, one expects the bridge to be complete. And most people walking up to the bridge said, hey, this bridge looks incomplete to me. Well, complete, you know, as we've talked about before, means something different to you and I and every other normal human being than it does to the city. I mean, the Jasper Avenue, 109th Street stuff is complete. But if you walk by there, the streetlights are still hanging from wires and they're still doing landscaping. So complete is... Shades of gray. (laughs) In the case of the Ada Boulevard Bridge, the thing that people think is incomplete is the barrier because there is a concrete barrier along one side 
that is quite short. I've not been on the bridge, but I've seen the photos and a couple of videos of it. And it's, you know, kind of below waist height, whereas the previous barrier was a bit higher. So you felt a little safer walking by there. And almost everybody I've seen who said, yeah, I went and saw it has essentially said it does feel very unsafe, like this is an accident waiting to happen. So to the city's credit, oh, wait, no, I'm actually not willing to give any credit on this item. The city came out with a statement that said they would install additional signage and that, quote, the concrete barrier is specifically designed for vehicle traffic safety, while the railing on the north side shared use path is designed for the safety of pedestrians and cyclists, end quote. To that, I would say, city of Edmonton, could you please just just for a quick moment, if you might remove your head from your rectum? <laughs> Cyclists can ride on the road. If the barrier is designed specifically for vehicle traffic safety and not for the safety of cyclists on the roadway, what you've designed is an unsafe bridge. Full stop. Yes, they said it was upgraded for, quote, everyone's safety. And I don't see how that can be true. I also really am sick of this idea that pedestrians can be shepherded and herded one specific way. If we're going to make a city that is accessible to pedestrians, that we can shift transportation modes in, we have to get it through our heads that a delay for a pedestrian has an order of magnitude more significant of a delay than it does for a car. And we shouldn't be making pedestrians go only one specific way because, oh my God, the cars have to go the other way. It's ridiculous. Okay, one failure of planning aside, let's talk about urban planning in the city of Edmonton. Um, you know, all right, you know, that I could have been more charitable. We have done some good things with urban planning and a new council is coming in and we've heard from a lot of council candidates that they want to do better things with urban planning. They want to take a more active role in shaping the zoning decisions for the next coming decades. So Mac, I think there's three primary levers when we're talking about urban planning in the upcoming council term and generation. And that's the city plan, which is our guiding document. Mm hmm. Part of the city plan, but more specifically infill and how we're going to densify our city and the zoning bylaw renewal process, all of which are happening right about now at the same time. This will be the tentpole decision making, I think, of the next council. Yeah, they're going to get right down to business with budget. And then you're right. I think zoning and planning and bringing city plan to life is going to be a, a whole lot of the work of the term. We asked some questions about urban planning on the Taproot survey. We asked candidates first or how they think council should bring the 15-minute districts described in city plan to life. And we did a whole story about these 15-minute districts, and we've talked about that before. I would say most of the candidates who responded to that said council should rely mostly on zoning decisions to do this rather than use other tools like financial penalties or, or incentives or, or those kinds of things. Uh, a very much smaller number of people said we shouldn't create these districts or they didn't have a position. So, you know, majority of the candidates here are looking to the importance of that zoning bylaw renewal. And then we asked them about infill. You mentioned that. We asked them if they support the city's current approach to infill. And the vast majority of candidates said, yes, they do. You know, a smaller number said no, because it harms the character of mature neighborhoods. And a very small number said no, because it allows too much gentrification. So most people are in support of infill. It sounds like most of these candidates want to have their influence brought through the zoning bylaw that we've got. And so then we asked them the third question on this, which is what they think about city council's zoning decisions over the last term. 
And specifically, this was about, you know, developers and if they allow too many upzoned projects or are too lenient for developers. And most candidates agree that Council has been too flexible under pressure from developers. And you can listen to previous episodes where we've talked about, you know, the complexity of the zoning bylaw and why the huge number of zones makes it really tricky to have some of these decisions made. The whole idea with the zoning bylaw renewal is to simplify all of that decision making, to make it more consistent so that there is less opportunity uh, for these one-off zoning decisions to take place. So I've said it like 30 times in this little description here of these questions, zoning bylaw renewal is going to be important. Before we get to that point, and I want to address on that point, I got a quibble with the Taproot survey again, because as you were reading it, and as I was reading through... I realized that, you know, we've put candidates into a couple buckets. The first answer, A, is council has shown the right amount of flexibility regarding zoning bylaws. Sure, you know, we're talking about a balanced approach. B, mm-hmm. council has been too flexible under pressure from developers. And now if you keep that in mind and look at C, council has not been flexible enough to make way for development. Mm-hmm. If you're considering B when you read that, you think, okay, council needs to be more amenable to developer concerns. But if you read C on its own, council has not been flexible enough to make way for development. It's talking about council being inflexible. It's not necessarily saying that the developers are pushing. And my instant thought when I read C is, well, let's talk about the MNO. Developers weren't pushing for the mature neighborhood overlay. It was the EFCL. It was residents. And council has shown an inflexibility to make way for development in approving the MNO. So I don't know how many candidates read that that way, but it came across my mind as I was looking through the uh, slew of candidates. Um, And as I'm looking at them now, I'm seeing uh, Mo Banga, Rick Comrie, uh, Kim Cruschel, Michael Oshry, Scott Johnston, Tom Shaw. So maybe I'm the only one reading it that way. (laughs) Maybe. I think with all of the options on the survey, it is choose the answer that best reflects your position, right? And so obviously people are going to interpret this differently. And we've heard lots of different complaints about the lack of nuance and all of that. But, you know, looking at the respondents, I think you're right. Um, Although Ashley Salvador is on that list as well. You know, and I would wager that Ashley because of her history with the Egg Garden Suites and specifically dealing with council inflexibility on parking minimums, for example. Yeah. I, yeah. It's possible she read that question in the same way that I just read it. Yeah. Anyway, putting that question aside, you mentioned the zoning bylaw renewal, and I want to talk about that because we have an election coming up in a couple days. This will be airing on Friday, the elections on Monday. By 8 p.m., polls will have closed. By 9 p.m., we should know who our new council is. And the zoning bylaw renewal is a once in a generation opportunity. We don't do this often. We do this every 30 years, maybe. So this next council could either push us forward, but it has the possibility if we elect the wrong council on Monday, it could set Edmonton back not just four years, but a generation. I think the zoning bylaw has a huge amount of significance in how the city will develop. It is the primary tool through which council will either bring city plan to life or basically ignore it and go in a different direction. This bylaw renewal project has already been underway and the city has done a bunch of work on it. But critically, council hasn't made any decisions that are difficult to go back on. 
all of those decisions are still ahead of us. So I think your assessment is correct that who we elect on Monday and their views on zoning bylaw and on urban planning in particular are really going to make or break how much of city plan we start to realize in Edmonton. We talked to her on the podcast before, but one of the architects of city plan, Kaylin Anderson, previously had left the city of Edmonton, jaunted off on her own ventures, but it was announced this week that she'll be coming back to Edmonton in a role that you or I didn't really expect. I would not have guessed this. I think this has to be good news. But Kaylin Anderson has been uh, named the new executive director of UDI in the Edmonton region. That's the Urban Development Institute. They represent the development industry. They've not always been known as a super progressive or uh, forward-thinking organization. I mean, they have business interests that they want to protect. And, you know, sometimes it sounds like they work really well with the city make very good suggestions to improve policy. Other times, it sounds like they just don't want things to change. Either way, it's very intriguing to me that Kaylin Anderson, someone who has been widely lauded and recognized as you know, a progressive, forward-thinking urban planner, is now the executive director of that organization. It could be the dawn of a new era for UDI and for its relationship with the city of Edmonton. When I read this news, it reminded me a lot of when Laura Cunningham Spelly uh, got the position as executive director of the EFCL. I've long criticized the EFCL for being a secret conservative lobby organization was the word that I use. Mm-hmm. And to her credit, Laura has undergone a lot of positive changes and I've seen the EFCL modernize and come out of it a little bit of a better organization. I mean, it takes a long time to write this ship, but she has been doing good work. And I could see Kaylin Anderson in a similar fashion, doing good work from the inside at UDI, reforming that image. Let's hope so. Speaking of hopes, this is not what this next segment is about. We are not going to predict with our hearts. We're going to predict with our heads, but let's let's do it. Let's make some election predictions. What do you say we just go down the list, 12 wards and a mayor? and See if we can come to some consensus on who's going to win this big thing that's about to happen. Sound good? Let's do it. So we'll start up north in Anernik. Beville Essinger just wins, right? I think so. She's got potentially a challenger in Aaron Rutherford, but it seems like Bev Esslinger with her name recognition is unencumbered is going to be difficult to unseat there. Yeah, and she was, of course, school board chair before she became counselor. I think it's a shoe in for Bev. Some of these will not take a bunch of time to discuss. In, <laughs> for example, the next one in Dene, Aaron Paquette wins. Done. Aaron Paquette. Easy. Next one, uh, E.P. Kokini Piozzi. I want to hear your thoughts on this first. Well, there isn't an incumbent in this ward, so we don't have that to consider. And there are, what is there, six candidates there. Scott Johnston has some name recognition, being a longtime columnist in the city. Uh, You don't think he's going to do very well. I think name recognition goes a long way, so that's a possibility. Uh, I would like to see Rhiannon Hoyle win in this ward, but I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that's a possibility? I think Rhiannon Hoyle is going to win. Uh, She's my pick. My heart actually wants Glynis in Ipikokuni Piotti. I've known Glynis a little while. I've followed her work, and she's really really cool person with um, very progressive policy. But Rhiannon um, has run a really good campaign. Mm-hmm. I think Scott Johnston, name recognition, everyone who recognizes his name is dead now because <laughs> they turned 174. Rhiannon's interesting because she's endorsed by 
Greg Zaschuk, which we mentioned earlier, but also Michael Walters, Stephen Mandel. Yep. Uh, she's a past president of the Alberta Party. So she's run a progressive campaign. She is a black woman, which I'd be stoked to see on council. That would be a first. I would expect her governance to be more Michael Walters style, though, towards the center. Right. If we go down to Gary Hale, I think we're in the same page here that Karen Tang is probably going to take this one, right? I think so. She ran a good campaign last time. She's run a great campaign again this time. She's uh, been doing the work. She's got now a little bit of profile name recognition since she ran last time. Yeah, I like her chances here. Why do you have to keep saying when she ran last time? <laughs> you know this is a sore spot, okay? You, you, come on, you don't, are don't do me like this. You are now a Karen fan, no? Come on. You've, you've come around to her, right? Dawn Iveson has endorsed Karen Tang. I do like Shamir Turner a lot. I've talked to her a few times. She's really smart. Uh, but I jumped on a Zoom call with Shamir one time, and she, she knocked my socks off. So if either Karen or Shamir end up pulling out a win, uh, Gary Hale will be well-served by them as counselors. Okay. Oh, Métis. Uh, I almost feel like we should leave this one for last. Mac, do you have any idea who's going to win Métis? I don't know. I think the front runners at the moment would have to be Ashley Salvador, who's run just a completely wicked campaign, and Corey Longo, who's uh, also run a great campaign and has had a large number of uh, important endorsements recently. My worry is that those two end up splitting the vote and somebody like Carolyn Matthews comes down the middle and takes it. But I don't know. I don't know in Métis. Métis, I think, could be the hardest one of the 13 races to call. Yeah, I think that's a really solid assessment because if you look at policy-wise, there's basically Caroline Matthews on the right and maybe Adul Hakim Dalel a little bit, but he's an also-ran. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of candidates splitting the left. And there was a recent state polling poll that came out, and there are some questions about the validity of this poll. Ugh, garbage. <laughs> but that poll, if we're to take anything it said, had Caroline ahead with 30, Ashley 25, Corey Longo 12. Yeah. I don't know that that quite represents what I'm seeing on the ground. I would put Corey Longo a bit higher. But like you said, Ashley has run a wicked campaign. Um, and I think maybe, no offense, Ashley, um, but I think she surprised a lot of people with just how well her campaign has been run. Yeah, I think people had high expectations for her and she definitely met them and maybe even exceeded them for sure. I think it would be fantastic to have her voice on council. I have absolutely nothing to do with her campaign or anything like that, but I would be very, very happy to see Ashley on council. I've door knocked for Ashley several times, so there's my disclosure. My heart and head both say Ashley, but my pit in my stomach says, oh, but what if it's Caroline? Yeah, I think it's a possibility. Nakota Isga, Andrew Knack wins. Great, we're Andrew done. Knack. We're so glad to have you still with us, Andrew Knack. Yeah, perfect. Congratulations on the win, Andrew. Oh, Damon's a weird ward. That's my ward. <laughs> to be honest, I'm going to say my heart says Ann Stevenson. She's been on the podcast before. I, You know me. I like me an urban planner as a counselor. But I honestly don't think I can predict anyone winning this ward. Are we declaring no victor? Like, Well, I really would love to see Ann Stevenson win this ward as well. It should not be discounted the incumbent advantage that Tony Caterina will have. I think he's a real possibility in this ward. Um, and then I think you've got, you know, potentially Gino on the left and Gabrielle Batiste on the right as, as other potential candidates. It, there's a lot of 
candidates here who could take it. it it's hard to call for sure. Even I think it's less likely, but Adrian Bruff or Joshua Wolchansky, they're longer shots to win. But I don't know that I would be shocked if either of them ended up pulling out a win. It's a messy ward. I think whoever wins this will win it on like 16, 17% of the vote. Yeah, this is going to be a close one for sure. And I also just want to quickly say, I think we've both said right and left a bunch of times and, you know, mean to, you know, put people in certain boxes. I know there's obviously a lot more nuance to it, especially at the municipal level. But, you know, I think you and I are both thinking we'd like to have a more progressive, what you would consider progressive council who will take some of these things forward, like the zoning bylaw renewal. So just a quick clarification. Sure. Uh, I'm almost afraid to say this next word word. name. (laughs) Uh, So Papasteo, maybe you should just call this one, Mac? Well, we've got Kirsten Goa, Michael Jans. We've got Byron Vass, who you said uh, is a cool cat and, you know, it'd be fun to vote for him. I mean, I think this one has to go to either Kirsten or Michael. I think they've both got, you know, large numbers of supporters. They both have good name recognition. They've both served for a number of years in different ways. I think both of them would make an excellent city councillor. It's a shame they're both running in the same ward. I don't know who's going to win. My my head in this one says Jans has this just because there's no incumbent in this ward, but there sort of is. Uh, Michael Jans really lucked out in that his school board trustee ward that he's represented for the past 11 years, mm-hmm. basically one-to-one maps with Papasteo. So that's a pretty significant advantage. I think the real wild card in this ward is Haroon, the uh, 18-year-old who's running for council. Mm-hmm. I think it surprised a lot of people with... Uh, how big his campaign has gotten. Yeah. It's not clear to me who Haroon is taking votes away from. And I think that could be the big wild card in the ward because Haroon not going to win it, but he is winning more and more votes. And I'm seeing more and more people saying they're voting for Haroon. What's less clear to me is, are those votes coming from the Jans camp? Are they coming from the Goa camp? Are they coming from Byron's camp? I'm not sure the source of the Haroon votes and where they would break had Haroon not been running. So that that's a wild card that really could shake things up come election day. I agree with you. I don't think he's going to win. I do think we will see more of Haroon in the future, and I'm excited about that. Uh, Tim Cartmel wins in Pihesa win. Congratulations, Tim. This, I got to say, is a little bit sad. We talked about uh, disclosures, and Jasquella, who is the only candidate brave enough to go up against Tim Cartmel, has unfortunately yep. raised... A couple donors worth of donations. It's not enough to unseat Tim Cartmel, who was one of the highest spenders on his last election win. Sorry, Jasquella, but thank you for at least preventing the acclamation. Uh, I appreciate yes, that. Indeed. Uh, and CP Winniewalk, um, Sarah Hamilton takes it, probably? I think so. Congratulations, Sarah Hamilton. Yeah, Giselle, you ran a good campaign. I, I love what you do on Twitter. I love your honesty in campaigning, and I love how you're trying to make more campaign resources available. But by golly, if Sarah Hamilton doesn't have a powerful campaign machine. For sure. In Spomitapi, Mobanga wins. Ugh, my head says Mobanga, but I really don't <laughs> want Mobanga back on council. <laughs> uh, we've talked about him many times on this show and never in a positive light. I think I can leave it there. I wish we had seen something more stronger campaigns from some of the other candidates in this ward. I don't know. Maybe there have been and I'm just uh, in the wrong community and and not connected to the right folks and I'll be surprised. But I think it would be a bit of a, a shock if Mobanga does not get reelected. 
I will say there is some merit to the lack of connection we have to this ward, because I think back even to the Ward 12 by-election, which isn't the same ward, but similar ward and what Mobanga won. And at that time, I considered Mobanga to be a joke candidate. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he won. And the candidates who I thought were going to do well didn't do as well as I thought. Uh, I have heard that Harmon Candola is running for similar votes that Mobanga is running for. And that might leave something open for Joanne Wright or Rash Palsembi to take something in the middle. But that's that's a long shot of my heart, um, my head. My head's with you on Mobanga. Yeah, unfortunately. And last but not least, home of friend of the podcast, Tasta Winniewalk, uh, home of John D from Ward 3. Oh, no. <laughs> formerly of Ward 3. He's going to have to be John D, formerly of Ward 3. Yeah. Okay. Well, the friend of the podcast, I think, will remain our friend Unfortunately, my head is saying John Dazadik takes this. Yes, I think the challenger here is Ahmed Nomadic Ali, who has been endorsed by Don Iveson, has some profile, you know, maybe has uh, enough connections to make it interesting. But again, incumbent advantage, I think it'd be pretty surprising if uh, Zadik doesn't get reelected in this ward. I will say there is one risk to John Zadik, and that's Karen Principe, who came within a spit and a stone's throw of winning last time against the incumbent Dave Loken. And she is running a center-right campaign. You know, this is one of the only wards in the city where we're seeing two people credibly come up on the right side. Right. Maybe that split allows Nomadic to take something, but my head says John. Last but not least, Mayoral. So he wins, right? So I think so he's going to win. I think Mike Nickel is probably going to finish second. And I think Kim Cruschel is going to surprise people and do a lot better than I would have pegged her uh, doing a few weeks ago. I don't think we're going to see Michael Oshry or Cheryl Watson pull out a victory here. I love you, Breezy, but we all know you're not going to win. I think it'll be uh, Sohi versus Nickel for most of the night. We agree Cheryl Watson probably takes fifth place, right? I mean, does it, does it matter who's fifth? <laughs> I guess not. I guess not. I was hoping for a little <laughs> bit of schadenfreude there, but you did not indulge me. I, I don't think it matters at that point. Like, you know, I'm I'm surprised, as I think I've said before on the show, that a couple of these candidates haven't already dropped out. And I'm not talking about you know, Rick Comrie or Abdul Malik, who dropped out to support and endorse Mike Nickel. I'm talking about Michael Oshry and Cheryl Watson, who I would have thought would want to continue to have a, you know, a, a, a profile and a bit of a future in Edmonton. And not that they can't come back from this, but I mean, it doesn't look great if you finish fifth, you know? So the one thing I'll say is now going through our council picks, what could this mean? Uh, well, as we were going through I think the thing that stuck out to me is that we're basically trading one or two sort of right-wingers for one or two more progressive people. I'm thinking we're losing Mike Nickel and Tony Katarina, probably. Scott McKean in O'Damon, who was far from a right-winger, but couldn't be reliably trusted to vote for the uh, more progressive policies that... Bit of a wild card, yeah. Yeah, you know, he, he was very, very active on the mental health file, but on development and on transit issues, less reliable. Climate change. Climate change, exactly. So if we trade those people out for the Ashley Salvadors, the Karen Tangs, the uh, Ann Stevensons, I do think we have the potential to set up council with the zoning bylaw renewal to really like set up the pins and knock them down for the next generation. Unless we're wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> and we get <laughs> and we get uh, more of a Calgary situation where you've got a progressive mayor like Amarjeet Sohi, but he doesn't always have the votes. Maybe this podcast will be like the Byron Vass tweet. We'll uh, reference it next week and say, whoops, that aged poorly. <laughs> no matter who wins, you can count on us to pay attention to whatever it is you're doing and to be hard on you, just like we would anyone else who gets elected. There's no no easy pass here just because we've predicted you might be successful. As we close out our last episode before the election, I'll add as a final note, we had mentioned uh, Andrew Knack and Amarjeet Sohi, and I had characterized the councillor and the mayor candidate as perhaps spendy was the word I used. <laughs> and I don't often receive hate mail, and I don't often receive hate mail from councillors. However, Andrew Knack, he made sure to reach out and correct the record. And I will, Andrew, at this point, give you the last word on this podcast before you win Nakota Isga and issue the correction. Andrew Knack sent me this message and he said, quote, track record. During my time on council, I have saved the city of Edmonton approximately $85 million through motions to streamline budgets. In 2019 and 2020, these savings allowed Edmonton City Council to approve the lowest tax increase in 23 years, 2020. No other councillor has found more savings via efficiencies since 2013. So, Andrew, you can look forward to that being on your record as you go off and win Nakota Iska. Keep running us the fan mail. Mac, we also received another piece of fan mail, and I couldn't end the episode without reading this piece of fan mail. Uh, let me just pull it up quickly. This episode is brought to you by Alberta Association of Optometrists, proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. It happens. Parents can easily miss their child's eye problems. Issues can occur and only one eye make them difficult to notice. The earlier an eye health or vision problem is identified, the more likely it can be corrected. The ICI Learn, spelt E-Y-E, you're clever guys, program provides an eye exam and free glasses if needed for kindergarten aged children. 25% of kids begin first grade with an undiagnosed eye problem. To book your child's eye exam, please visit optometrists.ab.ca. And of course, this is coming from the Alberta Association of Optometrists, which represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across the province. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care to Albertans. You can learn more at optometrists.ab.ca. That's it, Mac. It's over. Thank goodness. I'm ready to get back to normal. Aren't you? I am. I, I gotta say, I'm a little bit sad moving on from the election <laughs> you know i'm gonna have a lot of fun with it i'm gonna miss the twitter sniping i'm gonna miss threats of being canceled i'm gonna miss all the uh emotional grandstanding and progressive showboating wait oh oh no i'm not gonna miss anything you're right i think you won't miss it at all until next week i'm troy i'm mac and we're speaking, speaking municipally, municipally.